This is a podcast of First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan, a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify God by making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. For more information, check out fpchurch.tv. Our scripture lesson for this morning is found in 1 Kings chapter 20, starting at verse 13, and a rather lengthy section that we're going to look at today. Just to set the stage, Ben-Hadad, whom we will read about, is the king of Syria to the north of Israel. He has aligned himself with 32 other kings in an attack against King Ahab of Israel. And of course, the Ahab that we have heard about these last several weeks. We wouldn't expect God would be helping Ahab out, but we are surprised by what he does as he sends a prophet to Ahab. Follow along as I read, starting in verse 13. And behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, the king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hands this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And Ahab said, By whom? He said, Thus says the Lord, by the servants of the governors of the districts. Then he said, Who shall begin the battle? He answered, You. Then he mustered the servants of the governors of the districts. They were 232. And after them he mustered all the people of Israel, 7,000. And they went out at noon while Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the booths he and the 32 kings who helped him. The servants of the governors of the districts went out first, and Ben-Hadad sent out scouts, and they reported to him, men are coming out from Samaria. He said, if they have come out for peace, take them alive, or if they have come out for war, take them alive. So these went out of the city, and the servants of the governors of the districts and the army that followed them, And each struck down his man, the Syrians fled, and Israel pursued them. But Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, escaped on a horse with horsemen. And the king of Israel went out and struck the horses and chariots and struck the Syrians with a great blow. Then the prophet came near to the king of Israel and said to him, Come, strengthen yourself and consider well what you have to do. For in the spring, the king of Syria will come up against you. And the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods are gods of the hills, and so they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we will be stronger than they. And do this, remove the kings, each of them from his post, and put commanders in their places, and muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse, chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And they listened to their voice and did so. In the spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up against Aphek to fight against Israel. And the people of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went out against them. The people of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goat. But the Syrians filled the country 
enemy. The man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, The Lord is a God of the hills, but not of a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give all this great multitude in your, into your hands, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And they encamped opposite one another for seven days, and on the seventh day the battle was joined, and the people of Israel struck down the Syrians, a hundred thousand foot soldiers, in one day. And the rest fled into the city of Aphek. And the wall fell upon 27,000 men who were left. Then Ahadad also fled and entered an inner chamber in the city. And a servant said to him, Behold now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Let us put sackcloth around our waists and ropes on our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. And so they tied sackcloth around their waists, put ropes in their heads, and went to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Ben-Hadad says, Please let me live. And he said, Does he still live? He is my brother. Now the men were watching for a sign, and they quickly took, up, took it up from him and said, Yes, your brother Ben-Hadad. And then he said, go and bring him. And Ben-Hadad came out to him, and he caused him to come up into his chariot. And Ben-Hadad said to him, the cities that my father took from your father, I will restore. And you may establish bazaars for yourselves in Damascus, as my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, I will let you go on these terms. And so he made a covenant with him and let him go. Shall we pray? Father God, when we read a passage like this, we are amazed and astounded at your love and your grace and the constancy of your faithfulness to one of your kings, the kings of Israel, a man who did not deserve the least of your favors and yet was on the receiving end of a kind and gracious and forgiving God. We are reminded this morning that that is exactly the God that we approach. Thank you, Lord, for looking beyond our, in, in, our inadequacies and our failure and our sin and seeing it, us through the eyes of our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus. Father, thank you for your wonderful, kind, compassionate grace. We thank you for all of the ministries in our church we again lift before, bring before you our camp ministry and all of the efforts that are going into this uh, wonderful time. We just pray all of those who will be participating, not only from our own church, but other churches in the surrounding areas, may they be encouraged, uh, may they learn, may they be drawn closer to the Savior. And we just pray once again for your safety and protection. Father, we pray as the Menzels, uh, leave our church and make their way uh, back to Idaho. We pray in these coming days that they will continue to feel and experience the love of the people of this church, that they will go forth with their heads held high and anticipating and preparing themselves for all that God has before. 
you. We just pray your safety for them and that they would, they would have a wonderful adjustment. And again, Lord, we just thank you that uh, Jason is with us today. We pray that you would anoint his lips and give him the very words that would challenge our hearts because you are present in our midst and you are able to open our ears and our eyes to the truth that you have for us. So encourage us now in Jesus' name. Thank you very much, Pastor. I appreciate you having me today to be able to join with you and open up God's Word together. I got to tell you a quick story. Many of you probably don't know, know me. Some of you do. Um, I can remember the first time I came to this church in early 2017, and uh, my family is from the great state of Kentucky. We're from the bluegrass state. And the first time that I stood up here before I preached, Pastor Aaron very kindly stood up and said, if we need an interpreter, let me know. Raise your hand. So uh, about six months ago, I was back in Kentucky in my hometown of Winchester, right outside of Lexington, and I was going to a gas station. And I went to this gas station, and I was buying some chips and a drink or something like that. And I get up to the cash register in Kentucky, everybody just talks about anything, right? And so we're making conversation and we're talking. And she tells me, she says to me, you're not from around here, are you? And I said, I grew up a couple blocks away from this gas station. So now I feel like I'm having an identity crisis because I don't know whether I'm from Michigan or Kentucky or where I'm from. So I wish Pastor Aaron was here to hear that story. But I am thankful to be with you. And Pastor Ian told me to share just a little bit about what we're doing in Monroe, we started the church in January of 2019. And so it's been quite a journey uh, through COVID. We, we had been going for about a year of having weekly services and then COVID happened. But by the grace of God, uh, we are still plugging along. Uh, we're seeing marriages be restored. We've seen some people come to saving faith in Christ. Uh, our church has been able to, to serve different aspects of our community together as a, as a body. And so in the midst of what seems like a very difficult time, I must say COVID really strengthened our body and has caused us to be more effective and come together as a family. So I'm very thankful for the season that we are in. But part of that is because of the time I got to spend here. It was a very treasured time that I got to spend with this body of Christ as I was just uh, me and my family were allowed to just be and be loved on and cared for. So I want to thank you for uh, your willingness to love on us and, and send us out to be able to plant the church. So with that being said, let me go ahead and pray for us and we will open up God's word together. Father, we thank you so much for the day that you have graciously provided to us. I pray that you would help your servant to communicate your word faithfully. May I not say any more nor less than what your word has to say. May you soften the hearts of your hearers that they may receive your word with joy and gladness. May they be transformed by your grace to live in a way that's pleasing to you. May your hand be upon us today as we consider our Lord and our King, the person of Jesus Christ. It's in his perfect name that I pray. Amen. The title to the sermon today is, Don't Get It Twisted, It's All God. Don't get it twisted, it's all God. Don't get it twisted, it is all God. 
My kids are starting to get a little bit older, and one of the things we like to do as a family is to play basketball. Now, we probably drive our neighbors crazy because we play basketball in the day and at night. There's constantly a ball that's being dribbled. And I must say, I'm probably one of the loudest people in the backyard whenever we are playing basketball together. And so most of the time, whenever we play a game, it's usually me and my three boys are playing together. It's, it's me and my youngest son against my two middle sons. Now, I used to play a lot of basketball whenever I was growing up. And while I can't move as fast or jump as high as I used to, well, that's partially a lie because I've never been able to jump high. But what I can do still is shoot a little bit. I can still shoot the basketball fairly decently. And we typically have our rim very, very low. So I don't mean to brag or anything, but it's really pretty easy for me to dominate my nine-year-old son and my 12-year-old son. When we're playing in the backyard, I sometimes feel a bit like Michael Jordan as we are playing. So typically what I like to do is I start off by letting them get a bunch of points on me and my youngest son. I let them take a big lead. I let them think that they're going to have the victory in this particular game, and they get all excited. But then it's time for dad to take them to the school of hard knocks. They need to learn a lesson in humility. I'm sure some of you dads have done this before with your kids. I start taking over, and then we end up winning the game. I know it's a tough job, but somebody's got to do it. But here's what's so funny. My little man, my little seven-year-old, he'll start talking a little bit of trash whenever we start winning. He'll start talking like he did a whole lot to influence this particular game. He'll have his chest all puffed out, acting like he's the star of the game, even though he didn't do much of anything. And I have to remind him, don't get it twisted, little man. You know who won this game. You know who got the victory. You know who the king of this court is. In our passage today, we will be reminded of this very truth. God is reminding all of us, don't get it twisted. You know who wins the game. You know who won this victory. It's all because of me. Don't for a second think you contributed. And because it's all God, we should be the most humble of people to walk the face of this earth. Pride should be far from us. We should not be walking around with our chest puffed out like we did something. And because of our flesh's tendency to be filled with pride, all of us need a steady diet of what my dad used to call humble pie. So that way we aren't filled up with pride. And what we are going to be reminded of today is that it's all God's mercy. It's all God's grace and it's all God's glory. If anybody needed a dose of humble pie, it was King Ahab. Many of you have known about King Ahab. He is the, the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, and he ruled between 874 and 853 B.C., and his esteemed wife, 
goes by the name of Jezebel. And I don't think Jezebel needs a whole lot of an introduction. Uh, Fun fact, I recently learned that the name Jezebel is actually in the dictionary, and it says a scheming and shamelessly evil woman. So here's a little marriage advice to some of you men. Don't ever call your wife a Jezebel. It will not end well for you. The scriptures tell us that Jezebel actually killed many of God's prophets and even encouraged Ahab to build these temples to worship these false gods. This was an evil and very wicked power couple that were leading the northern kingdom of Israel. And the passage starts off by telling us that the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad, gathered 32 kings and this huge army to take the silver and gold and the wives from the northern kingdom of Israel. Essentially what Ben-Hadad wanted in exchange for safeties, he's saying, okay, okay, Ahab, here's what I want. I want you to give me all of these things that I just listed so that way I don't destroy your kingdom. And do you know what King Ahab did? King Ahab says, okay, I'll do that. We already know that Ahab didn't really care about worshiping false gods because he had been engaged in that before. But what this meant when he has this agreement with Ben-Hadad is that not only would he give all these things as a tribute to him, but he would be forced to worship the gods of, a- of-, of Ben-Hadad. And so we, when he makes this covenant or agreement with him, he is saying, I will worship the gods of Ben-Hadad. In verse 4, Ahab says, As you say, my lord, O king, I am yours and all that I have. So let's just stop and think about this for a second. King Ahab is saying, You know what, Israelites? Some of you aren't really that important to me. So I'm going to let this wicked king come and enslave you. I'm willing to sacrifice your life so that way I can maintain mine. You see, if I go ahead and give you up, that means they're not going to touch my palace. They're not going to touch my family. They're not going to touch my riches. And what does this show you? This shows you just how selfish and wicked and evil King Ahab truly was. The fact that God didn't strike him dead in the midst of his wickedness is an act of extreme mercy. And extreme is a light word for this particular topic. God puts his mercy on full display for all to see as he is dealing with the wicked king Ahab. The God of the Bible is a merciful God. But here's where all of us need to take a bite of humble pie for ourselves. When we look at King Ahab and think to ourselves, what a wicked man, what an evil man, what a selfish man. I mean, it's easy to look at his life and pick it apart and see all of his sins on full display. But here's the thing. The scripture must be our mirror. We've got to be honest with ourselves. 
We have to evaluate our own hearts. And I'm sure if all of us took just a little bit of time to think about it, we could see the mercy of God on full display in all of our lives. God exercises his mercy towards us on a daily basis. Instead of us fighting against sin, sometimes we entertain it. Instead of acting and living selflessly, we live selfishly. Instead of trusting in God and his plans, we trust in ourselves. The fact that God doesn't strike us dead shows that he has extreme mercy towards each one of us as well. And here's what's so crazy. Ahab put the lives of his own people at risk for his own self-preservation. In order for him to save himself and what he valued, he was willing to give his own people away to become slaves in a foreign land to a wicked ruler. He was so consumed with himself and his own wicked desires that he didn't care what he did. And that is a very, very dangerous place to be. But think about this in contrast. King Jesus did the exact opposite of King Ahab. Jesus sacrificed his own life for his great love for his people. He wasn't letting anything get in the way of his love for his people. He wasn't concerned about his own needs. He was on a rescue mission to come after his people. He left everything to come and save us. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And this, my brothers and sisters, is what makes Jesus such a glorious and loving and majestic king. He is a worthy king. Remember Philippians 2. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He humbles himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What a glorious king. The king of glory willingly became a servant. He washed the feet of the disciples. He said, I love you all so much, I'll take on the punishment that you deserve. I'll bear that cross for you. I'll not only risk my life for you, but I will give my life for you. Praise be to the one true king who is the opposite of King Ahab. I could literally sit here and, and preach on this all day, but let me keep going so I can get past uh, where, where we're at right now. Because if I don't get through this whole chapter, Pastor Aaron's not going to let me come back and preach to you guys. So I got to keep going. The story begins to move in a slightly different direction after Ahab initially agrees to the demands of Ben-Hadad. Ben decides, maybe I can push the envelope a little bit further. And he says, I, want you to come, I don't want you to just come out of the city 
and give me what I'm asking for, here's what's going to happen. Me and my army are going to come in your city. We're going to come into your palace. We're going to take your wives and we're going to take all your riches. We're going to take whatever we want. Well, Ahab did not like that idea. He didn't care about other stuff, but he did not want them taking his stuff. So he goes to consult with some of the elders about what it is that he should do. And at this point, we see in the text by silence that he still has not consulted with who? With God. He has never consulted with God. And the elders tell him, don't listen to Ben-Hadad's commands. Do not consent to what he's asking you to do. So what does Ahab do? He sends these messengers out to Ben-Hadad and tells him, we won't agree with your request, and this begins the battle. This is what sparks the battle. Ben hears this message as Pastor Ian was reading. Him and all of his 32 kings and their friends were all out drinking together, and they hear this news when Ahab says, no, we're not going to do that. So Ben-Hadad and his 32 uh, kings had a little bit of liquid courage in him, in them, if you know what I'm saying. Once they heard this, they were ready to start fighting. I'm sure some of you know exactly what it is that I'm talking about. But note to self, that's not a smart idea. Right after this, God sends a prophet to Ahab that says, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen this great multitude? I will give them into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. There was about to be no question. It would be God alone who would defeat this enemy. It would be God alone who would win this victory. But the question I want to ask you is this. What did Ahab do to merit God's gift? What did Ahab do to deserve such a blessing and victory from God? The answer to this question is absolutely nothing. He didn't do anything. You need to listen very carefully to what the author of this book is trying to tell us. He's trying to make a significant point. He's telling us that it's all grace that God is showing to Ahab. It's all grace that God is pouring out upon this people. And this grace, when God wins this victory, is going to be something that defies human understanding. It's going to be from a supernatural source. And through the eyes of the Israelites and through the eyes of Ahab, it looks like an unexpected victory. How could they see that they were going to win against this massive army? The reason that Ahab and some of his people didn't think that they would possibly win this war was because... Guess who the Lord tells to fight on behalf of Ahab? He calls these young servants. It talks about 7,000. These are 7,000 young men who are called to fight. These are not Navy SEALs. These are not Marines. Think about in your mind, these are like uh, the high school kids who have never, ever been in a fight. Okay? 
This is the people that God decides to use to get the victory. So it was going to be abundantly clear that there would be no other explanation outside the supernatural work of God to destroy such a mighty enemy. These guys weren't even the B team. They were more like the, the people that are sitting at the very end of the bench waiting to get in the game after they're already up 50 or down 50. It's incredible. But we must never forget that the ways of God are not the ways of men. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are God's ways above ours. This would be a grace-filled, unexpected victory that defies human understanding. At the end of last year, my wife noticed that our kitchen floor was starting to bubble a little bit. And as time went by, the bubbling in our floor began to spread a little bit. And just to give you a little context, the house that we got was a foreclosure and it needed a lot of work to be done. And so we just put these new floors in this house probably 12 months before we saw the leak in our floor. And so one day, as after she had seen the buckling, I was walking down into the basement. And I'm walking down in the basement, and I start to hear a dripping noise. And I look behind me, and I see that water is coming down into the basement that's dripping from the ceiling exactly where the dishwasher was. So we knew that there was a problem, Right? And so as soon as we saw that, we called somebody to help us and to see what was going on. To our surprise, the insurance people came out, the contractors came out, and they said, all this was covered. And we were going to receive a significant amount of money to renovate our entire kitchen. This was an unexpected grace and victory for me. Why? Because my wife had been talking about renovating our kitchen for a long time. We got new floors, but everything else was still old. And we had this 1970s type of kitchen vibe. And if you have a 1970s kitchen vibe, that's no offense to you. But my wife was saying, I wanted something a little bit different. And so here's what I'm trying to say. I would have never imagined that I would receive such an incredible gift that someone else paid for. My wife was happy and I got a new kitchen and I didn't have to do anything. I didn't do the work. I didn't pay the cost. I didn't put my blood, sweat, and tears in it. Someone else did all of that for me and I got to enjoy all the benefits of this new kitchen. I hope you understand what I'm trying to say. It defies human understanding to think that God loves us so much that he sent his only son to be sacrificed on a cross for our sin. It defies human logic to think that the creator of the universe would give us such a remarkable gift when we did nothing, absolutely nothing to deserve it. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a supernatural work. He was dead and got up. What grace 
have we received through him. And we did nothing to deserve it. He paid the cost. He did the work. He's the one that renovated our hearts. It's all him. This reminds us that when we consider the grace of God found in the person of Christ, it should flood our hearts not only with humility, but with love and with joy and with gratitude because we did nothing to earn that. And just as God said earlier in the story, because of his grace towards Ahab and the people, they would defeat this massive army. Verse 21 tells us 7,000 young men had Ben Hadad and all of his men running for the hills. And what we see is that the Israelites were able to, to knock them down. But what's going to happen is they're going to get back up for one more battle, for one more fight. Ben Hadad and his army would begin to lick their wounds and they would try it one more time. But instead of Ben Hadad mocking, mocking Ahab, he's going to mock God this time. Look at what the scripture says. He says this, the God of the Israelites is only the God of the hills. He's not the God of the plains. So what he thinks is that if he can take the battle to a different location, he'll actually win. But what he doesn't understand is that the God of the Bible is everywhere. It doesn't matter where he goes. The God of the Bible is the ruler over everyone and everything. God is not limited by time or space. And once again, this prophet, this man of God, comes to Ahab and tells him what's going to happen. And then the prophet says something very similar to what he had said earlier. Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said the Lord is a God of the hills, but not a God of the valleys, therefore I will give this great multitude into your hand and you shall know that I am the Lord. The scripture says the Israelite army was like two flocks of goat. This small group of people compared to all these military people that filled the countryside. Once again, these Israelites were outnumbered and they were outmanned and up against an impossible situation. But God was clear. When God says something, you can take it to the bank and deposit it. It's not going anywhere. Final victory belongs to God and all the glory belongs to him. And what we see in verse 29 is that those unschooled young military, that small group of people destroyed 100,000 Syrian foot soldiers in one day. And they finally destroyed them just as the Lord said. Final victory belongs to our God. And nobody else could take credit for what had just taken place. In the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, we are reminded that there is one final battle that's left. And just like this story ended with one final victory, Jesus Christ, King Jesus, is going to come back, not as a suffering servant, 
not as a sacrificial lamb, but as a conquering king. And the one who conquered sin and death will come back and he will set up his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And he will destroy evil and sin forever and ever and ever. And all his glory will be on full display for all to see throughout eternity. What a glorious day that will be. But let me finish with this. I would love to tell you that this story ends with a happily ever after for King Ahab. But unfortunately, it does not. Despite all that God had done right in front of his eyes, despite all the mercy that God showed him, despite all the grace that God showed him, despite the mighty acts that God did, Ahab kept walking in his wicked ways. And we see this at the very end of our passage. Ahab makes a deal with Ben-Hadad at the very end. After Ben-Hadad runs away from King Ahab, they end up making a covenant together. And many people think that Ahab was seeking a political ally. So even after Ben-Hadad did all sorts of things to die, Ben-Hadad just tried to, to destroy Ahab. Ahab still is making deals with him and allowing him to live. Ahab was so entangled in his sin that he was unable to see what God had done in his life. He was blind. He was so caught up in his own selfishness and wickedness that he just ignored the word. He ignored the mercy he was given. He ignored the grace that was shown to him. And ultimately, that would lead to his downfall and destruction. Let me just finish with this. The heart is very, very deceitful. It can very quickly become hardened towards God. We can forget about his mercy in our lives. We can forget about his grace in our lives. And we get so caught up in our circumstances that we lose sight of the greatest gift that God has ever given, which is his beloved son. So I just want to say this. If your heart feels hardened toward the Lord, beg and plead with God to make your heart of stone become flesh that you may not only know the grace of God, but feel the grace of God and live it out to the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your faithfulness to us. We are reminded of your goodness towards us, even though all of us are so undeserving. We are thankful for the precious work of Christ that redeemed us, that transformed us from the domain of darkness to your glorious light. And we pray, God, that you would allow us to be a people that's marked by humility and love and grace. May we reflect your glory as we seek to make disciples in our community. We love you and pray all this in Christ's perfect name. Amen. This has been a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan. For more information, please visit us online at fpchurch.tv.